Thanks very much, Artem, for reading the passage to us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mary's from the start. It's good to see you here. And if this is your first time connecting with us, great to have you here as well. My name's Mark. I'm the vicar here. And after the reading each week, we say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond, thanks be to God. And I wonder, how thankful are you for this passage, given how it finished just there in chapter 63? Let me read that last verse again. I trampled the nations in my anger, in my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. This is the word of the Lord, everyone. Thanks be to God. Are, are we thankful? Or do the words, thanks be to the Lord, sort of stick in our mouth somewhat? Because the description we get of God here in Isaiah 63 can be quite hard to stomach when we hear it for the first time. I mean, just a bit further up there, we get again, I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and they stained all my clothing. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the God of the Bible. Now you say, oh, well, hang on, this is the God of the Old Testament, Mark, and we've spoken about this before. The God of the Old Testament sort of tends towards the more cruel and vindictive end of things. And I'm someone who much prefers Jesus, you know, in the New Testament, and he's full of love and grace and, and compassion. Hold a finger in Isaiah 63, Come with me to Revelation chapter 19, the last book of the Bible, the New Testament, page 1248. So keep a finger on Isaiah 63. We'll come back to that in a moment. Flick forward in the church Bibles um, to 1248. So this is Revelation 19, and I'm going to read out verses 11 to 16, and this description of Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, on the final day. Okay? I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. It is Jesus Christ. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Jesus of the New Testament. This figure that we see in Isaiah 63, it is the same person of Jesus in Revelation 19. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And what do we make of that? I, I mean, I want to say, I want to sit with this for a moment, that, that these are hard verses to stomach when we come across them for the first time. If you're someone here looking into Christian things, it's great to have you with us. You might be wanting to reject Christianity straight out of hand, having seen this description of God here. But even those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we come to parts of the scripture where we see a character of God that perhaps we've not heard of before, we find difficult to fit into our whole understanding of God. It can make us doubt the goodness of God, can make us doubt, is it really worth giving my life to this person? But I put it to you that the description and the picture we get here of Jesus in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19 are incredibly good news for us. So this picture of Jesus underpins hope. It sets us free from personal vengeance and grudges. That even amidst, 
incredible difficulty and suffering, to know Jesus like this can even turn mourning into joy and praise. So that's where we're going. You might say, how on earth does that make sense? Well, come with me now. We'll start in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, and Jesus' proclamation of good news for sufferers. Okay, so we're back in Isaiah 61. Sorry, I'm getting you to fly around everywhere here. Hopefully you had your finger in page um, 749. So Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Let me read these to you. Jesus proclaiming good news for sufferers. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners or for the blind, as the footnote puts it, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what are the poor, the brokenhearted, captives, the blind all have in common? They are all suffering. They are all sufferers. Suffering the effects of a fallen world, suffering often at the hands of others. And here is Jesus proclaiming hope and deliverance. I see your pain. I understand your pain and your suffering. And I've come for you to proclaim and bring good news to you. That word, bind up there, is the word used for a nurse bandaging up a broken arm tenderly, carefully, coming close, personal attention. This is a picture of how Jesus tends to our own broken, suffering hearts. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that is a reference in verse 2 to the year of Jubilee. So every 50th year in the nation of Israel, Cancelling all debts, releasing all slaves, returning all property to their original own freedom. So Christ here proclaiming good news of setting us free from those who oppress us. Now, we know this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that it's referring to him. Because in the New Testament, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, as Jesus begins his ministry... He quotes from these very verses in Isaiah 61 and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This good news that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, it is here now with me. I am the one uniquely in history bringing this good news for sinners as we saw last week in Isaiah 55. Good news for sufferers, those suffering from sin, the consequence of sin and other people's sin. Now in Isaiah 61. One of the most influential acts of the 1990s when I was growing up as a teenager um, was the grunge, I think it is, rock band, is that right, Nirvana. Um, Smells Like Teen Spirit was the album that we were all listening to. I think it's one of the best-selling albums of all time. But here's the lead singer, Kurt Cobain, who would sing and scream into the microphone about a lot of the darkness there is in this world, a lot of suffering in this world, a lot of oppression. And in the end, tragically, he couldn't make sense of it, didn't see a way out of it, and, and took his own life. What we have here is a picture of Jesus Christ coming to earth and offering to anybody, no matter how serious things are, no matter how dark things are, a way out. Release from the darkness. Good news for sufferers. And so look, are you brokenhearted as you come to church this afternoon? Imagine all of us in one sense or another are broken, are suffering. Maybe you're feeling oppressed at the moment, at work or by others. Maybe you're suffering under the cost of living crisis. And Jesus proclaims good news to you 
this afternoon. He's come for you. And the transformation he brings, verse 2, notice this, comfort for all who mourn, provision for those who grieve in Zion, God's people in God's place, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I mean, this wonderful transformation, this wonderful turnaround as Jesus comes bringing this good news for all those who will welcome him and come to him. I saw this week that the workplace, workplace, sorry, health report 2023 shows that over half of UK workers are currently experiencing at least mild symptoms of depression. Is that you? Back in 2019, Sir Angus Deaton of the Institute for Fiscal Studies found a rise in what he called deaths of despair, driven by a lack of opportunity, growing inequalities, and bleak social and economic outlook. I'd lo- I don't know if that's you today. I-, I don't know what's going on for you. Sometimes life can feel, feel very hard. Sometimes it can be very difficult just to get, it, get through a day. And even if it's not sort of as extreme for you as that right now, some of you may be grieving on a day like today, Mother's Day, because your mother is no longer around. Some of you are carrying pain and hurt and suffering because of what's happened to you recently or perhaps what's happened in the past. And Jesus is saying, I am here and I'm proclaiming good news to you. Comfort, provision, joy, the opportunity even to praise admits the suffering difficulty you're going through. Now you say, how does that happen? How does Jesus do that? I want that, sounds good. Tell me more. How do I get this comfort and this provision from Jesus? Did you notice something strange in verse 2 of chapter 61? As it was read out. Here he is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You not think that's a little bit strange? Like why has vengeance got to do with good news? Why is Lord's favor and God's vengeance side by side in this same verse? Now, how does that work out? For Jesus to deal with all suffering, he has ultimately to deal with all sin. Because all suffering at its heart comes from sin, either the sin of others towards us, either the sin that we commit and bring suffering on ourselves, or a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve, our very first parents and human beings, and the fallen world that we all live in now. And so for Jesus Christ to proclaim the Lord's favor for sufferers, well, there needs to be a day of vengeance for sinners. The problem is we're all sinners, so we all deserve God's vengeance. But when Jesus stood up in that synagogue in Luke chapter 4, look this up later, as he's quoting Isaiah 61, guess where he stops the quote? He stops it in the middle of that verse, verse 2. He finishes it saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't go on to the next bit. The day of vengeance of our God. Now, why not? Why is he stopped there? Because when Jesus comes the first time, he did not come to proclaim God's vengeance. He came the first time to bear God's vengeance at our sin so that we could hear his proclamation of favor and forgiveness and relationship with him. 
And so that is why we can have real joy in the present now, amidst difficulty, amidst suffering, because we know the Lord's favor, we know his forgiveness, we know his presence with us by his spirit. We can praise God in the depths of despair because he knows what it's like. He has already gone there with his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to mourn like those who have no hope because we know the power of Christ's resurrection, real comfort, real provision, because the one who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and brought him back from the dead. He is the same one who walks with us today if we are trusting in him. Such good news. He is such good news. Whenever we're suffering. And just look at what the Lord promises to do for us at the end of verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I mean, that's just an incredible pick. That's a beautiful pick. When you think of an oak tree, what do you think? Of strength, of sturdiness. A symbol of endurance, longevity, unshakable. This is a picture of what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of every Christian believer, every follower of the Lord. A strength, supernatural strength when we're feeling so weak and at times we just can't carry on. A perseverance and the pressure is really on and oppression is on. Persecution perhaps for many Christians around the world, even if it's much lighter for us here. Endurance, even when life feels too much. Here is Jesus proclaiming good news to sufferers, a genuine turning from mourning to joy. Now, at this point, you'll say, okay, well, look, Christ came 2,000 years ago. He's proclaiming this good news for sufferers. <laughs> Why is there so much suffering still in the world today? Got chain strikes, tube strikes, teacher strikes. Got a refugee crisis that Gary Lineker is now getting involved in. I just went on BBC News just for like the, the top headlines of the past week. Snapchat stabber, murdered young woman, three-year-old boy murdered by his stepmom. Where's the good news there? Good question. Let's move on now to chapter 63, verses 1 to 6, as Jesus also proclaims a final victory for sufferers. He comes his first time, he proclaims good news for sufferers, he also proclaims a final victory for sufferers. And notice as we get to these tricky verses, and we get to verses 1 to 6, please notice the context in which they are written. This is one of victory, this is one of salvation. We get these questions at the start here. Who is this coming from Edom? Edom representative of all those that set themselves up against God, bring suffering to God's people. This person's coming from Edom. He's, his garments are, are stained crimson. He's robed in splendor. He's striding forward in the greatness of his strength. So we get this picture, this mighty, powerful, victorious warrior. Who is this? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. We've seen already, Revelation 19, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get the second question. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? And it is here by way of answer that we get these verses three to six with anger and fury and God's wrath and God's vengeance. As Christ brings a final judgment on the nations like Edom and all those who reject Christ's salvation at his first coming. But please, notice again, even within verses 3 to 6, the context in which this judgment is coming. Verse 4, this is really key. Just glance down at verse 4. 
It was for me the day of vengeance. Why? Next part, because the year for me to redeem had come. So do you see we get redemption and vengeance side by side, judgment and something together in the same verse. We can only have salvation through judgment. We see that in Jesus' first coming. Proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. How? Through a day of vengeance that he takes on our behalf. Bears our sin in our place. But now that looking forward to a final salvation, again, it has to come through a judgment. Through a final judgment. The only difference now is it's going to be on all those who have rejected Christ's salvation and Christ taking the vengeance for us. So let me be as clear as I possibly can that God wants everyone to turn to Christ and be saved. That is why he sent his son Jesus Christ the first time. That is why he does not end all suffering the first time because he wants everyone to have an opportunity to hear the good news about him and to respond to the good news about him. But there must be a a final day. There must be a time when Christ does bring all evil, all injustice, all suffering to an end. And on that day, there will be a judgment for all those who spurn God's love, spurn Christ's salvation. On that day, it will come. Now look, I know instinctively, as I said at the start, we recoil from this language of God's anger and wrath and vengeance you know, falling on those who reject him. Partly perhaps because when we think of the words anger and wrath, we think of human anger, we think of our own anger and wrath, where we can lose it, we can fly off the handle. It's often unexpected, it can be sudden, um, it can be unfair, unjust. Um, I mean, my goodness, I find it difficult to tell off my kids sometimes. I don't know who's like in the right, the wrong, or what appropriate punishment is, let alone Christ doing it for the whole world. And so we think that, you know, God's like that as well. God's anger and wrath is never like that. It is always measured, it is fair, it is just, never sudden, never unexpected, never flies off the handle. God is patient with us. God is slow to anger. Partly we instinctively feel that a God who is all-loving couldn't possibly act in, in this way. But deep down we all long for someone who can deal with all that's wrong in this world. Of course we want a future where there's no evil, no injustice, no suffering. We want someone like that. And this picture is saying there is someone like that. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one person who can do it. Listen to these words from Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian who saw his country torn apart in the Balkan conflict back in the 1990s. A quarter of a million people died. Two million people became displaced. Uh, He himself, Miroslav Volf, experienced very traumatic suffering at the hands of others. And and he writes this. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. To the person who is inclined to dismiss God's vengeance, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burnt and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's 
refusal to judge. That's quite a long quote, but do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it is only those people who live very sheltered lives, you know, in the, in the peace and quiet of a suburban home, that would ever come up with the idea of a God who doesn't judge, a God of vengeance. But when you are confronted, when you experience real evil, when you experience people that real suffering, of course we want a God of perfect vengeance. Of course we want a God who one day will deal with all evil injustice once and for all. And if there is not a God like that, you know, he argues, that's not a God to worship. Not worthy of our worship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We can be thankful with this description of God here, rightly understood in the context of salvation after much patience and a final judgment to come. Here is the guarantee of an end of all suffering, all evil, all injustice. And one of the emphasis of verses three to six, did you notice, is how Christ can alone can do this. Do you see that if you just glance down? In verse three, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. Verse five, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation. Again, the focus here is on salvation. We cannot have a final salvation without a final judgment. We cannot have an end of all suffering without this day of vengeance. And it is something that Christ uniquely can do. Just as easily as Jesus healed the sick, drove out evil, calmed the storm, walked on water, raised people back from the dead. Just as easily as he did that, so he'll do it just as easily when he comes back on the final day, the whole world over. It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Jesus proclaims a final victory for sufferers. <clears throat> and that can be hugely transformative for the way we deal and respond to suffering that we're facing now. A few years ago, um, Joe and I, my wife Joe and I, and we had dinner with Rachel Denhollander when she was over here doing some talks, and she's in the old Souls where Joe was interviewing her. If you don't know, Rachel Denhollander was the first victim to publicly come forward with allegations against Larry Nasser. That was the USA um, gymnastics team doctor. Um, he was jailed for 175 years, um, having sexually abused countless numbers of girls under his care, including Rachel, who was one of them. And she was the final one of the 156 survivors to speak in court. And I'm just going to read out an excerpt of what she herself said as she is facing her perpetrator and just before this um, <clears throat> I think final sentence happens. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. Which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that 
to you as well. Now, is that, is that not just astounding? Is that not just for us? Like, perfect example of this oak of righteousness. Here is a woman so planted in the Lord that as she faces her own perpetrator who has committed such evil against her, she does not take matters into her own hands. And if you ever see the film, you Google it and watch it. She speaks with such poise and calm and assuredness of God's final judgment day. And yet at the same time can speak such words of grace to her perpetrator. Extend forgiveness. Because she knows how sweet the good news about Jesus Christ is herself. I mean, where do we have anything else like this? It is only with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you know him as he really is? The Christ of Isaiah 61 and 63 and Revelation 19. A saviour who proclaims good news to sinners, to sufferers. The Christ who will one day bring a final victory over all sin and suffering. Do you know him? Come to him. Come back to him today. Come to him afresh and let him comfort you, provide for you. Turn your mourning into joy, your despair into praise. Come to him and let him make you and grow you more and more into this oak of righteousness such that his splendor can be displayed through you. There is no one else like him. There is no one else who can bring in the future, the hope, the deliverance that we all long for and that we all need. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, thank you so much indeed for Isaiah 61 and 63. These are hard verses for us to come to, for coming to them for the first time. But we want to understand who you are, why they're here, why you share them with us. And we see it's in the context of salvation because you're a God who longs to rescue your people. You're a God who longs to alleviate suffering. In the person of Jesus, his first coming, you proclaim good news to us that we come to you. We have our sins forgiven. We have a relationship. We restored your spirit in us, growing us, making us oaks of righteousness that can withstand incredible pressure. We can't do it in our own strength, but you can help us with that. And thank you for this hope of that final day when you bring a final end to all suffering, all evil, all injustice, once for all. Move our hearts to come to you afresh today, to live for you afresh to know the comfort that you uniquely provide in the face of the most difficult times and oppression and suffering. We praise you and love you and honor you. In Christ's name, amen.